So the sitting posture, it's really something to be played around with. Um, it takes a while to figure it out. It takes a while to figure out what works for you. Try with different heights. Try with different kind of ways of using your legs. Um, <coughs> you know, when I was a monk, we had to sit every morning. Um, and it even then took me a while to really figure out, um, you know, the height that I needed, how many cushions I needed, kind of where to put the light. So, it's kind of one of those things, and also over time I did become slowly more flexible by sitting, and then I could sit in postures that I wasn't able to sit in before, so, you know, um, it kind of, I think it's, it's a, um, a familiarization thing, that the more you kind of do it, the more you start to understand what's going on in your body and how you should sit, and, and it'll start to make sense. Um, sitting in a chair is also allowed, right, so you don't lose meditation points if you're not sitting on the floor. Um, if you need to sit in a chair, it's no problem. Or if you need to sit up. I know, you know, when I started at the very, very beginning, I had kind of this big cushion and I used to straddle it like that, like a horse, right? So I had like a leg on either side. And that was how I could sit for 10 minutes before my legs started hurting. And that was as much as I could do. And I did that once a week. And that's how I started my practice, right? So um, it's really kind of just start where you are. Um, you know, sometimes we look at Similar, I think, to yoga, right? For those of us who practice yoga, sometimes, I know for myself, I take yoga classes, and I'm super unflexible. So when I see what the yoga teacher is doing, and I look around, everyone else in the class can do it, and I'm like up here, you know, and it doesn't really work. Um, it's easy to kind of feel a bit dejected about that, or to feel kind of like, oh, somehow everyone can do it, and I can't, and like give up. But like yoga, as they teach you, every body is different. Every body is body. Is different, and you kind of just do what you can, and you and you make it work for yourself. Um, so if you're sitting and you start to have pain, um, feel free to adjust your position in mid meditation, right? So don't sit and force yourself to not move. If you need to move, you can move, um, and hopefully this will guide you towards a position that works. And also, there comes a point in the sitting practice. So I did. Uh, one of the 10-day Vipassana retreats when I was in India. And this is, you know, 10 hours of sitting a day for 10 days, and it's silent, and you have, like, your spot, kind of, and you wake up at, you know, whatever, 4.30 or 5. And, um, you know, it's very kind of almost, like, militant in a way. It's, like, really, like, you sit and this, and by the end, they start doing aditana, which is, like, determination sits, where you sit for an hour without moving a muscle. Like, you kind of build up to the end where you're not allowed to move at all, and you just have to sit for an hour. Um, and you do 10 hours a day, so you're just doing these sections. And, um, and leading up to that, I remember, I think it was maybe day, I don't even know, day four or something. Um, I was sitting, and, you know, again, it was 10 hours of meditation a day. So by that time, you're not even meditating anymore. You're just kind of going crazy. Like you're just sitting there, and like, just in this weird daze of like waking up at four, not talking, and just sitting with your eyes closed for the entire day, right? Um, so you're just in this kind of weird headspace, which is kind of awake, kind of not, kind of meditative, kind of just strange. Um, sometimes you'll drop into like a really powerful place. Sometimes you'll just come out of it and be totally restless and up there. So it's also really powerful in terms of seeing the mind's movements and how it just kind of comes and goes, does its own thing often. But I saw for myself that I would, you know, I think on day four I was sitting and I, you know, I had, um, I 
I have like pain like in my leg, so I kind of took my leg and I put it behind me like this, and I was like, okay, and I meditate for a little while. And it was like an, an hour, I think, practice, or 40 minutes, or whatever, an hour. And then I'd kind of be uncomfortable, and then i kind of put the leg back, and then it didn't work, and i put it like up my knee, and I'd like that, it didn't work, and i put this one back, and you know, and I kind of had to keep adjusting my positions, and i kind of put my legs out, and I sat like this, and I was like, okay. And nothing was working anymore. You know, it was like there was no, I put my legs forward, my legs back, but I just everything I tried, it wasn't, I couldn't, it just, it was uncomfortable. Because there's some reality that if you're sitting on the ground for four days, you're going to just feel uncomfortable. It's, discom- it's not comfortable. The body, our bodies especially, are not really used to that, or made for that at the moment. Uh, so we experience a lot of discomfort. And, uh, but I kind of was like adjusting and fidgeting and fidgeting, and then I got to this point where I said to myself, like, Seth, uh, I, I give up. It's not, I can't be comfortable. It, it is not possible. There is no comfort to be found, you know. And it was just kind of, it was like this, uh, yeah, it was just kind of, I gave up, you know. I was just like, okay, like it, it's not possible. Um, but then this kind of amazing thing happened where suddenly I was able to drop into like a very peaceful state because I just accepted that the body is not comfortable. And it was really only that much. You know, it was only that much. And it was really my fighting against it or trying to not be in that state, that was really what was the whole irritation. Um, you know, and then I'd sit and there'd be a pain in my leg and I'd be like, okay, you know, okay. You know, there's a pain in my leg, fine. Kill me, pain. And I started saying that to myself. In my head, I would say, kill me, go ahead, kill me. You're so bad, kill me, fine. Because that was what I was really afraid of. It's hard to explain, but I noticed for myself when I had pain, my, uh, I guess this is like the sacral chakra, so right down here, but just below my belly button, this area of my body would start, would tense up, I don't know why, but down here it would get tense, and it was like a panic. So when I had pain in my body, I would tense up, and I had like a panic, this panic. And when I was like, what is this panic? It's almost like when you feel pain, you think you're going to die. It's like, it's the warning system for the body. Because that's usually what pain is about, right? It's to protect you. So if you touch a hot stove and it's painful, you're like, oh, don't touch that. If something bites you, you're like, oh my God, that thing bit me, get that thing away from me, you know? So pain has a function. It alerts your body to when there's a problem. But then there's things like chronic pain, which the pain doesn't actually have a function anymore in that sense, or it keeps telling you, you're like, yeah, I know, like my knee's busted. Thank you for reminding me every day, all day long. Like, I know, you know, that there's times where the pain doesn't actually have a function anymore. Um, you know, and that's just something to know that this pain is it's, a, it's signaling something and I know that and the pain is still kind of keeps telling me there's something wrong and I already know that and then right, it's just like okay, so what do you want to do about that? Right? So how do you want to make peace with that? Um, and I really found that giving up as, as strange as that sounds was one of the most freeing things that I did in that, in that moment just in this situation uh, really giving up and feeling the pain, and when the pain got really strong, I would say, okay, kill me. Go ahead, kill me. Let's see what you got. You know? And it would only be that much. It would burn, and it would feel like, you know, like my leg was on like a hot stove, and it would feel like there's like a knife going into my kneecap. Like all these different kind of pains would come. And I'd be like, yeah, go ahead, keep going. Like, I, let me never walk again. Like break my leg, go ahead, let's see it. Just destroy my body, please. Try it. You know? And in that situation, it kind of eventually just went away. The meditation ended, and I stood up, and I 
shook it off, and that was that, you know. And it was only that much, because at the end of the day, it's just, it's the body, you know. It's the body, the nature of the body, as they say. It is to feel pleasure, it is to feel pain, you know. And a lot of people, we chase that, we chase the pleasure, we try to get away from pain. As we get older, we start to seek another kind of creeping reality that escaping pain is not always real, not always realistic. I think that's, again, just the inevitable nature of the body, that as you get older, the body will start getting painful for everybody, for everybody. It's just a normal thing. Um, so there's a couple different techniques um, that I found, yeah, again, one is just surrendering to that, one is accepting it, one is challenging it. Another one is going into the sensations, right? So once I was relaxed and I felt that knife pain, I kind of went into that pain and I was like, you know, like, let's feel this really fully. And my mind was in there and it was almost like this weird tingling sensation with different things happening. And, and it wasn't pain anymore in terms of like what I know of pain. It was just this like really intense kind of burning sensation that I felt. And it was interesting because I realized that pain is actually my resistance to that feeling. But the feeling itself was just a sensation. Um, so if you look also on the top of my head, I have three kind of marks, three holes. And this was, um, as I was a Buddhist um, monk, we, for our full ordination in the Vietnamese tradition, we had, um, it was called the Bodhisattva ceremony. So you kind of, you know, ceremonially accept the role of a Bodhisattva, which is one who really works for the benefit of all others on the spiritual path. So one that really dedicates themselves to helping other people find enlightenment, which also means that you have to figure your own path out too because you can't lead somebody if you don't know where you're going yourself. So it's kind of really making this deep commitment. And the way the ceremony worked is that, you know, a couple of us monks and nuns, we kind of kneel down, put our hands at our hearts, and then they put three incense cones on our head and lit them and they just kind of slowly burned down as we just sat there with the community around us just chanting. And, um, and you know, you're just sitting there, and you're kind of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know. And it kind of slowly starts to get warm, right? And then it kind of starts to get hot, and then it starts to, like, feel like a sunburn kind of feeling, like where it's hot, but like a little, like, like it stings a little bit. And then that sting just started getting more and more intense, like a sting got, got more and more intense until it was like this really dull kind of sore pain and then it was just like, like yeah, literally like your head was on fire, right? Um, and actually I have a, you know, a photo of me just sitting there and this smoke coming off of my head. Um, and it was really fascinating because as it was happening, you know, and I, I looked and you know, one of the monks kind of down from me, he was trying to disconnect from his body as much as possible, right? So he was kind of like slumped over and he was kind of just trying to like not be present at all, that was his way. Uh, the nun, next to me, she was like whimpering and like she like just wasn't, you know, she was just breaking down emotionally about it. Um, and I kind of felt it and I just for some reason just reflected on that this is a ceremony and this has a purpose and I want to do this right. And I said, may all beings be happy. May any being that sees this be freed of their suffering immediately. May all the people here watching this happen to me, may they never be reborn in a hell realm again. May anybody that ever sees these three points in my head for the rest of my life always be uplifted and happy and free. And I started just making these prayers. 
And as I was making these prayers, the pain, as it was increasing, started to transmute. And it's as if it was coming down through my head and coming out my heart. And the stronger the pain, the more intense my aspirations became, that they were completely linked together, that the strength of that, that the intensity of that pain was the power of my prayer. May no one ever have to feel pain again. And it was this really beautiful ceremony. And then eventually, you know, the pain hit this kind of high point, and then that was it. And then it leveled off, and it just stayed as super intense. And then, you know, they came over with like a tray of cucumbers, I think, and they put like cucumbers, I don't know why, but I guess they're cooling. They put cucumbers on our head. And, um, you know, and then the ceremony ended, and then I had these, you know, I don't even know what degree burns that would be anymore. So I have like, I don't know, some degree, third, fourth. I don't know, what are the degrees? Anybody? All right. Yeah? Third degree? It was like down, like there's like divots, you know. Um, you know, and then that was painful, of course, but the worst part was really just in the ceremony. And it was this really amazing experience to see that through the power of the mind, the power of the heart especially, that pain can be transmuted in that way when you give it an intention, when you give it a purpose. Yeah, that, you know, it's not necessarily that by me feeling that pain, anybody else will ever feel less pain in their lives. Right? It could have been a total fantasy world. I'm just sitting there and I'm like, may nobody ever because I'm doing this. But it doesn't matter because it worked. It was a subjective experience and it worked. And to sometimes give pain a meaning sometimes helps. Sometimes to feel pain and to remember what it's from or to yeah, make wishes that other people don't have to feel that again or to send compassion to other people that are in the same situation. That it can also be used as a an impetus towards spiritual realization. And this is one of the most important things to realize in the spiritual path, is that there's nothing that doesn't belong. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, that is your path. Some people's path is anxiety, some people's path is depression, some people's path is pain, some people's relationship trouble, some people it's you know, life, midlife crises or whatever. Everyone's path has different things that, that is coming up in front of them that they have to learn how to deal with, different lessons to learn. Those lessons are different for everybody, but we are all facing something, everybody, to different degrees. And it's really hard to say if somebody's facing something more difficult than somebody else. Yeah, I think sometimes, like when I see things in the news, and I'm like, oh my God, like that's... That's like hell, like that's really hell. And yet I also know what it's like to live in hell. And that's just from like growing up in a certain way, in my household or something. It's not, it's not even that I had to be in like some war, um, you know, war-torn country out there. Sometimes my own family was war-torn, you know? Literally, my dad was a Vietnam vet, so it was like this feeling of like a war-torn family. Yeah, so we all experience different levels of suffering. Um, and that's our path. Whatever it is that we have to deal with, whatever comes up, that's, that's it. It's not somewhere else. A lot of people have this feeling like there's the if-then mentality. You know, like, if this thing can be dealt with, then I'll be happy, then I'll be at peace, right? If I didn't have that thing, then I could practice meditation more, right? There's always this if-then thing going on, almost like wishing things were different or thinking that if things were different then everything would be okay and not realizing that things are the way they are 
well, first of all, things are the way they are, period. But also, things being the way they are gives us an opportunity to develop ourselves, to practice, to, to grow, to realize something. You know, I, there, I would not want chronic pain, right? I would not want that. That is not something I would wish on myself or anybody, right? That would be miserable. And, however, if I had chronic pain, then I would use that chronic pain for my spiritual growth then I would take the hand that I've been dealt and I would try my best. And again, this is really important. It's because a lot of people, when they get too, like, Buddhisty, they think, yeah, you know, it's all good. Whatever happens, you know. Um, one of my um, teachers was saying that he was at a monastery in Thailand and uh, there was, like, a big storm, like, a branch fell and, like, cracked, like, the ceiling in one of the monks' huts so there's like, rain coming in. And the monk, like, just sat there and, like, meditated. And, like, a couple days later, still the monk's still just meditating, you know, like, in this hut. And the, the abbot of the monastery comes and he's like, there's a huge friggin' hole in your ceiling. Why don't you fix it? And he's like, well, I'm practicing detachment and letting go. And the abbot's like, you're an idiot. Fix your ceiling. You know, because it's not just letting go. Because then you might as well just lay on the floor and die if you don't. If everything's nature, yeah, then see what nature does to your body. Lay on the floor, stop breathing, see what happens. You know, like the reality is, is that we are also living in this three-dimensional world, which has a body and it has roles and you have, you have to eat and you need the bathroom and you have to breathe and there's real things we have to do. And if you're feeling pain, you try to fix it, of course. I mean, of course, right? If something's going on, you try, you try, you try your best. But if it doesn't work, if you get to that point and you realize, like when I was, you know, sitting and I couldn't, everything I did didn't work, it didn't work, it didn't work. I got to that point and I said, Seth, there's nothing that you can do to feel better. There's nothing. And I, I exhausted all of my possibilities. And so I just surrendered to it. And then I could let go. And it was still painful, but I could accept it. And so it's really important to balance those two things. So we're not coming here to meditate, to just let go and be like, oh, that's it, I'm just letting go. You know, you have to try. You have to also put effort to make things work in your life. If you, someone's sticking you with a needle, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to meditate through that. You push them off of you and say, don't stick me with a needle. You know, you, you protect yourself. You love yourself. Yeah, this is self-love. You, if you're feeling pain, you try to fix that pain. You do what you can. But if you get to a point where you're out of options, there's nothing else that you need you know how to do, then you have to look into surrendering, to really accepting that this is like this, to offering up prayers, yeah, to connecting this pain to something bigger than you that maybe is there, maybe not, maybe, but just really letting the universe be there and say, okay, like, there's this thing and I don't know what to do with it and I give up, help me. You know, and, and I know for myself, that's like when I'm desperate. That's actually beyond desperation. Usually when I'm desperate, I pray. Yeah, I try, I try, I can't do anything, and then I just start praying and like invoking Buddha and all these things. I'm like, okay, just, you know, whatever. And then eventually I just surrender because there's no other way because the will cannot do, it just has to give up. Um, when I was in India recently, I also, well, recently, so 2015, um, we also did an ayahuasca ceremony which, if anyone knows what that is, it's um, it's really powerful um, psychogenic substance from the Amazons that the shamans there use. It's from like a vine, and they cut it, 
and it has DMT in it, which is like this really powerful, like psychoactive kind of substance. And they mix it in a way that your stomach can kind of absorb it. And it's a ceremony. So you sit there with a the shaman, and, and a shaman was visiting from Peru, like in India. It was this kind of strange thing. Um, and I went to the ceremony near the Ganga, and we kind of stayed up all night, and we kind of took this substance, and uh, you know, felt myself suddenly just be very discombobulated, is the best way to describe it. Um, but you sit all night long. You sit the whole night in this state. There's like a fire, there's all these people. And it was like hell. It was like suffering, like intense suffering. Um, I wanted to be grounded, but I couldn't be grounded. I wanted just to not be there, so I closed my eyes, but I closed my eyes and I was just seeing these crazy like rainbow grids and things like this, like, oh God. So it's like, you can't escape inside, you can't escape outside. And eventually it got to this point where everything was too much and then I just started vomiting. And actually when you do ayahuasca, this is what happens. People, you vomit, you purge, right? So at the, at the peak of this kind of thing, this overwhelmedness, I gave up and I just started vomiting. The body just couldn't take it anymore, started vomiting. And then I sat back down and I closed my eyes and then I just dropped into this amazingly deep place where I was like understanding about how the mind works and how reality works and how this is all like dream material and you know how we're all connected through consciousness and just all these huge realizations were just coming up. You know, and I had to first go through that and I, afterwards I spoke to people and they said like, well, the whole point of these ceremonies is that you have to go through an ego death. They call it an ego death. So are these specially designed ceremonies that take you past what you think your limit is, that you literally give up. You feel like you're dying. You're, you suffer so much and so intensely that you eventually just crack. The ceremony's there to make you crack, literally vomit from being overwhelmed. Um, and suddenly you realize that what you thought your limit was is not your actual limit, that you thought you can't take it and you, yeah, it's too much, and then you give up and then suddenly you're still there. And there's still more. And then, and then you exp it's suddenly expansive. So it's this ego death in terms of it pushes you past your boundary, your limit, what you think your limitation is. And then suddenly you realize that there's so much more out there, that you're bigger than who you thought you were, who you perceived you were. So sometimes in our life, um, you know, the things we face are really just lessons to be learned. Right? So a lot of our life situations, believe it or not, we have created ourselves. Right? Whether you want to talk about this in like a spiritual way, that like you were born into this family to help resolve a karma, or you have like life lessons from past lives and things like this, or whether you want to talk about it in a very concrete way. Like if you're in a relationship and you're overly controlling, your partner is going to distance themselves, probably cheat on you, which was then the thing that you were afraid of from the beginning and you've created a self-fulfilling prophecy that because you were afraid of something happening, you were over-controlling, which then caused that thing to happen. So then you, get in, then you say that guy's an asshole and you find someone else, but then the same thing happens. And then you think, okay, then all guys are assholes because everyone's cheating on me. You know? And you don't actually see that, oh, it's because I'm overly controlling because I'm so afraid, I'm so tightly holding on that people have no chance except to get out of there, to back off. Yeah, and this is called karma in Buddhism. Karma is that when you do something, there's an an effect, it's just cause and effect. Um, as very simple as if I hit the bell, it makes noise, yeah? That's a very simple form of karma, right? You do an action, it has a result. Yeah, very, very basic, nothing kind of mystical about it. 
But then when you start looking at your life, you realize that your life is kind of your karma as well. That the way that your life looks, the things that you have, the space in your house, I just moved into a new place. And decorating and setting it up, you realize that even the way you decorate your house is an expression of who you think you are, what you think you deserve, yeah, what you know about yourself. We also have the karma of being in America, right? And in the Northeast too, right? So we also have American karma. There's things that our country has to deal with that other countries don't deal with, and vice versa, of course. We have, like we were talking about before, human karma, that we get old, we get sick, we die, we have all these problems, right? This is things that human beings have to face with. There's also animals that have another kind of karma, right? They don't have to deal with taxes and things like this, but they have a whole slew of other problems. Yeah, so there's some karma that's just through the situation you're in. There's karma that belongs to that situation. And then there's karma that we create, right? The way that we treat ourselves, the beliefs that we have about ourselves, the beliefs that we have about the world. And if you're not clear about those beliefs, you're going to keep creating situations out of those beliefs. If you think that you're worthless, you're going to keep attracting that energy into your life. You're going to be unsuccessful in things you do. You're going to attract partners that think they're better than you. You're going to attract friends that kind of push you to the side. You're going to create a whole environment that you are the middle point in your worthlessness. Yeah? That if that's your belief, that's what you're going to create. You know, you'll keep acting and behaving and speaking in a way, and then that's going to be mirrored back to you. And then you'll be like, yeah, see, I knew it. People don't really like me. I knew it. You know? Anxiety can be another aspect of that. Same thing. We're afraid of things happening. So we're kind of tense. We're panicked. So me and my girlfriend, we have two little dogs. One of them is like super, I don't know what happened to him. He's like a rescue, I guess, like post-traumatic stressy kind of dog. She said, if, you're if something happens and you start to fall over, he will run underneath you. Because he panics so much. In the moment he sees something, he goes, something's wrong. And he will always run. She said he's been run over by a car. He's been like his dad, like things have fallen on him. Like if there's something happening, he will always run inevitably in the wrong direction because he panics and he doesn't even, he can't see. And so out of his panic, he runs himself into a car. He creates the thing that he didn't want. Whereas if he didn't panic, he would see this thing falling and he would just step to the side and the thing would fall and he'd be fine. Right? So he's creating through his panic the thing that he doesn't want. And then it validates it. Right? And then he's like, see, I knew it. I'm going to get hurt. Something bad's going to happen to me. And it keeps reinforcing that belief in him again and again and again and again. And this is really important that we look for ourselves because this also starts to manifest on the physical level. And this is like what I learned in the monastery with the Chinese medicine is that over 90% of the patients that came, it was psychosomatic, meaning that it was mental and emotional and behavioral that then turned into physical. And because my teacher was really such a master at what he did, he could look at somebody. You know, um, I've told the story um, a few times, but there was a man that came in with, with dementia, starting to get dementia, and his wife's like, can you help him? And my teacher started treating his stomach. And after one week, the man was getting his memory back, and he could kind of go home with like certain medicine. And I was like, how does that work? And my teacher's like, when that guy was a little kid, Every time he would act out, his parents would say, they'd like yell at him, they'd say, stop it, you're too much. So he felt like he was not okay. He had a feeling like his expression of himself is not okay. 
you know, and the solar plexus, this is like where we feel confidence or insecurity, this is like where we express our, our I, our big me feeling, right? Or we kind of feel like, oh, I don't know, I'm not, you know, we make ourselves small by crunching our solar plexus like this, you know? I'm in middle school, I see a lot of middle school girls doing this, right? Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, so this is your feeling of I, and because his parents kept like squelching, I don't know squelching a word, but they kept saying, you know, no to him. So he kept that, he, he learned that he, his belief that it was created was that I am a burden, that my feelings are not okay. If I let this out, I'm going to get hit back with something. So he started holding that stuff inside, holding tight here in his, in his belly area, right? Which over the years made his digestion worsen, which then when he ate, food wouldn't break down properly. So then when it went to the liver to to move through the body, the liver couldn't filter everything out of it, and then it goes into the bloodstream, and then the big proteins that weren't able to be filtered would go in the bloodstream and then get lodged in the brain. And because there's big proteins getting lodged in the brain, blood couldn't flow there, and the guy was getting dementia. So he could trace the dementia of a 70-year-old man back to the childhood, what his parents were doing how a belief based on a situation is carried over emotionally. It's recreated. The man also, he came with his wife, and as you could imagine, the wife was kind of the one doing all the talking. The wife was the one that was really like controlling, right? Because he again put himself in a situation where his feelings aren't okay. So, of course, he has to have a partner who's very expressive, who's very open, who speaks a lot, who shares a lot, because someone has to fill that emotional space. You know, and for her, it's great. Oh, I can just share everything and have someone who just sits there and listens and doesn't, right? So she's like happy to take all the space in the relationship, right? And he's happy to have somebody else take the space, right? So it's often we find our counterparts in relationships like this, right? So you have to kind of see what that means. Um, but to trace a belief to an actual physical symptom, it's, it's fascinating. And when you really get into it, we could all see this in ourselves, how these things are connected. Um, and... You know, anxiety, for instance, anxiety is the fear of something that's about to happen, but you can't do anything about it yet. Yeah, they said like somebody going to war tomorrow. There's anxiety because they know on the battlefield they're going to have to be running and shooting and ducking and they don't know. But right now they're still at home, so there's nothing they can do about it. So they know that they're going to have to do something, but right now there's nothing they can do for that. So that's the feeling of anxiety. The thing is, if we then start to look at our lives like a battlefield, we're going to feel that every single day. Because the truth is, you never know what's coming. Every day is like that. Every day, it's a complete mystery. A lot of things are going to come you don't know. You don't know how you're going to deal with everything. You don't know. There's going to be, for the rest of your life, a whole unknown field of stuff that you have no idea what to do about. Things, you're going to face problems you don't even know exist until they come. You're like, oh my God, there's that thing too in life, right? So, is there reason to be anxious? Of course, of course there is, in a way. But also, just as much as you could be anxious about the future, you could feel really excited about the future. There's also a lot of really cool, beautiful new things that are going to come that I've never even thought about. Yeah? So just as there's reason to be anxious, there's also reason to be excited. There's also reason to be proud of yourself, of, of everything that's happened, to realize everything you've been through. And to realize that because you faced all that stuff in the past, you have the ability to face the future. That you create an internal security that you take with you. That you say, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's like Jackie Chan, right? He has my birthday, by the way. 
So Jackie Chan, right, in his movies, he kind of goes up and he, you know, he goes in the room and there's like 40 guys, you know, and he still kind of sticks up and then all these things happen. He doesn't know beforehand what's going to happen. Well, I mean, you know, as the actor he does, but in the movie he doesn't. But because he trusts his skill, he knows what he can do. He knows that whatever comes, he's going to find a way around it, even if it's like breaking a table and spinning around his head and then flipping up into the chandelier and then swinging out the window on the back of a donkey or something. <laughs> you know, he knows that he'll figure it out because he trusts his skill. He trusts that he's skilled enough to navigate life. And the fact is, is like if all of us are still sitting here, we all have the skill to navigate life. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here, you know. So really trusting in your skill, trusting that I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever comes, I'm going to face it. And I'm going to face it fully, and I'm going to give it my best. And I'm there for me. I'm there for you, little Seth. I'm there for me, right? I'll, I'm going to face it. I'm going to figure things out. And if I can't, I have friends. I have people I'm going to ask or I'm going to read. I'm not going to give up on myself. I'm going to figure it out. That you kind of promise yourself, I'll be there for you. You don't have to worry. We'll figure things out. Whatever comes, we'll figure out. Because... I would rather be blindsided by a situation that I wasn't expecting than to spend five years worrying about a situation that might come and it never comes. Just as like a general quality of life kind of thing. I'd much rather just, you know, be oblivious to what's going to happen and then just that day something happens and then you're like, oh, okay, that thing happened and then you respond to it versus having like a general anxiety about things but there's nothing you can do about it. And also when you talk about depression, depression, what happens with depression is that there's usually something that's coming up in your life that's painful. It usually starts with something painful, like an experience, a moment, a belief, something that's painful. And because it's painful, you don't want to feel it, so you start to shut down emotionally. Because when you're emotionally present, you feel pain. A lot of very sensitive people, by the way, get depressed. Because when you're sensitive in this world, you feel a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain out there. You look at any other person, you can see their pain. You turn on the news, you can see the pain. You look at yourself. There's pain everywhere. That's part of the reality of life. There's a lot of pain out there. Life is scary. The world is a scary place. There's a lot of pain out there. So if you're really sensitive to all that pain, you're going to start shutting down because you don't want to feel it. But because you're shutting down to pain, you're also shutting down to the positive feelings that you could be feeling. Yeah, and anytime you do try to open up, you just feel that pain again, so you shut down. Yeah, and this is what a lot of people that experience depression, it's like this kind of spiral where you, you keep yourself closed off, and not even consciously anymore, it becomes just like a habit, you know? And it's hard to remember, and that's why things like yoga, like going to the gym, like swimming, like things that get you back in touch with your body, because then you start making, you start feeling something that's not painful, and you're like, oh, okay, and then slowly you start kind of coming back to life. And then eventually, and that's also why there's like animal therapies and different stuff, because there's ways that you can facilitate a process that you can have a positive emotional experience, that you start to realize, okay, there's this too. And also you'll start to realize sometimes that the world has everything. Yeah, the world is a mixed bag, right? You can look at the world and see that it's going to hell. You can look at the world and see that it's transcending. You can look at the world any way you want and you'll be right. Because all those truths exist at once. So sometimes we also have to think, what is the frame that I'm holding in front of my vision? Do you guys know what I mean when I say the frame I'm holding in front of my vision? I can look at this room and I can only look at the people who are wearing red shirts. Oh, okay. So I'm only conscious of who's wearing red shirts. Now I can look who's, what's the difference between women and men? Okay, there's women, there's men. That's my frame, right? 
the woman and men frame. Yeah? Then I could look, who do I feel intimidated by or who seems like, you know, like a nice person, okay, a nice person, intimidated. That's my frame. Yeah? Who do I, who am I afraid is going to punch me in the parking lot later? Okay, that's me. <laughs> yeah? So we un unwittingly, unwittingly, we carry around a lot of frames that we look at the world with. Unwittingly. We're holding a lot of frames, again, often based on our fear, right? If I feel worthless, I don't want people to know that, so I try to put off something like I'm not worthless, and then I'm always looking, do people, do you accept me, do you not accept me, are you listening, are you not listening, what do you think of me? Like you kind of scan people and read them, because the worst thing is that somebody will do something or say something and realize, oh my God, I'm worthless, right? It's the truth, they see me, right? That I'm seen, that I'm worthless, right? So often the frame that we carry around is connected to the deep fears that we have, the thing that we're trying to avoid. We carry around a frame to try to get away from that, right? I'm afraid of leading a meditation class where everybody's bored and like they hate me and stuff. So I'm like, okay, like, what, like how do I make this class like interesting and fun and good? And like, is people following it? Does it make sense? It's helping people? Like, is this working? You know. So we put frames, a, a, a conceptual framework around a situation to read it, to see certain things in it, but. There's a million different frames you could hold up at any moment. And because it's our habit, it's a habitual tendency based on our beliefs, based on our fears, based on what we want and what we don't want, that we only, each of us only uses a couple frames to look at a situation. So we have just a habitual way of viewing the world. So it's a really interesting experiment also is to start to notice that and also to try out new frames, right? I once, when I was driving in my car, I was like, what if I imagine that I already know everybody? That everybody that I pass in my car is actually a good friend of mine. And I just drove and every person I looked at, I really emotionally just felt like, oh, hi, there you are, oh, nice to see you. And it was this amazing thing where suddenly I could see everybody on this beautiful deep level. And there's even like kind of like the gangster kids walking down the street, you know, like, uh, usually kids are like, oh, stay away from those guys. You know, and I looked at them, and I was like, oh, hi, you know, and I almost felt like I'd be like their grandpa or like their mom, you know, it's like, I'm like, oh, like, you're so sweet. I could see the sweetness in them suddenly. I saw these really beautiful qualities in everybody because I just chose, like, let's just try out this new frame, which is like, everybody's my friend and my family. You know, in the Dalai Lama, he actually said the same thing. He says, everyone he sees, he tries to see them like they're old friends. So I've met the Dalai Lama a bunch of times, and every time you meet him, he's just like, ah, oh, hi. And, and eventually, he actually did get to know me. Eventually, he was like, oh, he looked at me, he's like, oh. Uh, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, monk, Germany, right? And I was like, where I was in the monastery. I was like, yeah, wow, the Dalai Lama remembers the monastery I'm from. Cool, you know. Um, but yeah, so changing up those frameworks is, is huge. And realizing that you're holding a framework is huge. Because you, you don't even realize that you're keeping yourself in a, in a mind prison. We don't even realize it. We're keeping ourselves in, in a prison all day long. And we just think that's reality. That's me, that's the world. Yeah, go on Facebook, perfect example, right? Yeah, these people are always complaining, always this thing's wrong, that thing's wrong, Trump this, Trump that, blah, 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 blah. You know, go to the other page, look at my dog, look at my food, look at my baby, look at all these cool things in my life. You know, that you could see, and that also is, of course, why do people want to present that? That's like a whole other story. But you can see how people's minds work on Facebook. It's a great, like, social tool. Like, you know, you can really analyze all these people, and you're like, wow, like... You know, you could see where they're at, and, what, and some people are super negative, and there's negativity, and they want other people to get negative with them. Isn't this Look, they, want, they, they trigger other people around them because it feels, yeah, right, like they're validated in their negativity. 
right? And there's other people that are the other. They post like really beautiful things and like, oh, and, like share the 100 likes and a baby is saved in heaven. I don't know what, but like they do nice things and they want to spread that. And you can also see how people even try to use that to further their own psychological agendas, so to say, right? It's fascinating, really. Yeah. I think those people feel guilty and they don't pour those things. Well, it plays right. off of guilt. Yeah, sure. And so that's, that's why it's a social network, because all of our social things come up. Yeah, guilt is a great one. Guilt is one of those things that, you know, guilt, it's about setting boundaries. Because when someone makes you feel guilty, what happens? You feel angry. Even if you do what they want, you still kind of feel angry. Or you just feel used or whatever. But guilt, it's really great to set boundaries, you know. You need to share this. It's like, you think I need to share this. And that's your thought. That has nothing to do with me. You know? Yeah, but people need to hear this. You know, don't you want to help people? I do want to help people, but I am helping people in my own way. I don't need to help people in the way that you want me to help people. You know, that guilt, anytime someone's kind of guilting, and this is like also like religions love using guilt, right? But anytime guilt comes in, you can realize, oh, that's an opportunity to set a boundary and say, no, that's yours, not mine. Yeah, because guilt is a way for people to control other people through negative feelings. Yeah. There's also positive guilt, right? Like, if you steal, I stole money from my sister when I was a kid, and I was meditating in the monastery, and I remembered, and I felt guilty. So I gathered money together, and I mailed it to her in New York City from Germany. And I just said, I stole money from you when I was a kid. I'm sorry, here. And I just gave her a couple hundred euros, you know, that people had donated to me. And I was like, okay, the guilt's gone. You know, but that was a good guilt. That was my conscience, right? That we have, we have conscience. We feel guilt and shame, and those are good things if used properly but they can, like everything, be misused, right? We can misuse them ourselves. Other people can misuse them. Again, from childhood, we can be taught, right? Christianity, right? Like you are a sinner because you were born, right? That you're born with a guilt already, and too bad, you know? That we're given guilt by our parents, right? You know, we don't, we don't have, we didn't have much, so you have to appreciate, you have to eat all the food on your plate. People are dying in Africa, whatever. Yeah, that we're given guilt, and that's part of what, you know, parents also try to, try to educate us or make us do what they want, how they see things. So it's a lot of deprogramming needs to be done, too. Um, so maybe some people, I'm sure not, because this is like a good talk, but maybe some people are wondering about the whole meditation aspect. This was supposed to be like a meditation night, right? <laughs> um, so, and we will meditate at the end, I promise. But what you start learning about in meditation is when you sit to meditate, you'll start realizing all the reasons why you cannot meditate. That you'll sit to meditate and every which way of other things comes up. And I felt that meditation, it's really great to start to calm the mind and relax and it gives you kind of a direction and like a base that you're going for. But ultimately, what it's good for is bringing more clarity into your life and starting to kind of change your belief structures, changing the way you live your life, changing the way that you, you relate to everything which then starts to make your mind more buoyant, more peaceful, more happy in your daily life. So all of the peace and the happiness and the joy that I feel in my life, it's not, I can't say it's because I meditated for thousands of hours. Yeah, I would really say the biggest gains that I got were the ones that I really confronted somebody in a situation, I really spoke out my truth, I really set a boundary, I really changed my behavior. Yeah, because meditation in the mind, it's the same mind. Yeah, when you meditate, all the other stuff falls away, Right? The world falls away and you just drop into the awareness and it's really peaceful because you're not dealing with anything. It's like being in a cave. It's like you're just with the awareness, which is really important. It's like resting. It's like the mind can rest and the mind can clarify and the mind gets strong. 
But then the mind eventually has to come out of that and back into your character with all of your beliefs and thoughts and feelings and situations. And then it has to learn how to navigate again. And if you meditate and then you go back into your life and you keep doing the same stupid things that are hurting yourself, you're not getting the point. Because then meditation will become like an escape, right? That you'll meditate to kind of feel, you might as well just play really loud music and cover your eyes to like get into this, to not have to feel anything, right? Meditation needs to be an accompaniment to also changing the way that we live our lives. And for me to just sit here and like we breathe and we smile and things, you know, and then you guys go back home you might feel great for the rest of tonight, but then you wake up tomorrow and then what? Or maybe you go home and you have an interaction with somebody and all that peace is gone in a second, right? So ultimately, it's a deeper practice and it involves really reflecting on and also shifting our, our entire lives. It's all connected together. So that's kind of the basic impulse that I feel for this talk for tonight. Um, so I think for... The rest will do like a 20-minute meditation session, and I'll guide you guys into that, right? And I'll kind of walk you through that slowly. Um, the most important thing to say about meditation is actually quite simple, is that meditation happens when you stop, when you let go of everything. It's not something to do. It's not the next thing to do. It's when you stop doing, then that space becomes filled with meditation, right? It's a letting go process. So thoughts are going to come up, and you kind of just let it go. It just floats away. Next thought, you let it float away. Oh, yeah, but I'm supposed to be meditating. You let that go. Oh, but I should... You let that go. So, but let it go. So each thing that comes up, you just let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are human beings, right? So we're spending too much time being human and not enough time being being, Right? just to be, just to sit. And if something, if your thoughts come up, if there's noise, if you have pain, it's fine, just let it, just let it. Okay, I'm thinking, great, it's gone. I have a pain, okay, it's gone. Things are gonna come and go, they're gonna come and go. You're not focusing on the things that are coming and going, you're focusing on the space. Okay, so if you're sitting in this room and people are coming into the room and leaving the room, coming into the room and leaving the room, you're not focusing on the people, you're focusing on the space of the room. The space of the room is unchanging. So meditation is the same way. You just sit with the spaciousness and things come and they go and they come and they go but you don't focus on each thing that comes or why you don't want things to come or ah, I'm supposed to be meditating I don't want to be thinking about going shopping later. You know, you don't worry about anything that arises. You really take refuge in the fact that everything that arises will also pass away. So there's really nothing to do. You're waiting for a train that's never going to come and you're perfectly happy with that. Yeah? The true meaning of patience is to wait without expectation. Yeah. That you really just sit and you wait and things come and they go and they come and they go. And none of those things are what you want. You came for the peace. You didn't come for the thoughts. You didn't come for the fears. You didn't come for the planning, past, future, all that stuff. You didn't come for that. So that stuff's going to come and wave its face, you know, hello, and then go away. Next one, hello. Go away. Next one, hello. And they're going to keep coming. And eventually, when you uphold that disinterest towards them, and you start feeling the peace, your mind is going to gravitate towards the stillness, towards the peace. It feels good. The mind is drawn towards things that feel good. And it'll happen very naturally all by itself. So meditation is not something you have to do. Meditation is what happens when you stop doing, when you let things alone. Eventually the mind will just get pulled down into there by itself. 
Okay, so that's the hard part. Meditating is not hard. Stop being control freaks. That's the hard part, right? It's not hard to meditate. It's hard to just stop trying to change things. That's hard, right? So it's just about sitting and being and allowing. And I'll guide a meditation that brings us into that state and I'll kind of just leave you there for a little bit to feel it and then bring you back, okay? So get back into these meditation positions that feel comfortable or slightly comfortable or mostly comfortable for you. Um, remembering that you want to sit in a way that you can feel pretty stable, that you're not going to be moving much for the next yeah, 10, 20 minutes. And um, if your knees are up and you need to stick something underneath them, like blocks or blankets, it's fine. Just make sure that you feel stable because, again, when you get into meditation, you're not going to be feeling your body so much, so it's easy to kind of fall over if you're not stable. So, yeah, find a position that works for you. Then we'll begin in a moment. 